some point she describes how she's found her perfect partner because their perversities are perfectly matched, yeah. which I just love. Yeah, I'm kind of in love with the whole of their relationship. <laughs> Good morning, day or evening, and welcome to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Knight, bringing you stories of art and the art of stories. In this podcast, I discuss an artist's practice through the lens of fiction chosen by my guest. I'm keen to open up access to art by bouncing between books, the artwork, and most importantly, the ideas shared between the two. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with the very talented Jane Hayes Greenwood, who has selected The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson. I was thinking about sex and the erotic body and food, consumption, desire, and I built a gigantic love heart that's based on the swizzle sweet. Step into the world of Jane Hayes Greenwood with her soft summer breeze pastels, figures, flora and fauna. There are beautiful blues and gentle pinks, pretty greens and juicy red apples. But wait a moment. Are they needles? Spiky breasts? That looks like, like a scrotum. And does that flower have teeth? Jane creates beautiful images which promise simplicity and deliver something far stranger and more wondrous. Her work is full of ambiguous symbols and often seems to be located in a dreamy virtual space telling tales on thin grounds which might just disappear like dissolving sweets. Over lockdown, Jane created a number of small works, including a baby called Eve. And in this podcast, we take on a range of ideas, including birth, which is often the poor cousin to the apparently much more dramatic, though equally common, death. And on that note, I'd like to extend a warm and very much alive thanks to you for listening. Jane Hayes Greenwood, welcome to Art Fictions today. Hi Gillian, thanks for having me. In fact, I should say welcome again because this is a little bit of a take too, as Jane has had a little bit of COVID. <laughs> I might still have a little bit of COVID. Yeah, we are recording safely by Zoom. Masks off. But distanced. Very distanced. Okay, so Jane's chosen The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson. I'm going to try and read a quick summary, but it's very difficult to actually make a summary of this book because it goes on so many journeys. The Argonauts is a simply told tale about complexities in language, identity, sexuality, gender, and becoming and being a parent. It's not so much fiction as a fusion, including biography and theory. It's a hybrid of content where, in one moment, the author, Maggie Nelson, speaks intimately about her life with artist Harry Dodge. Another moment, she's questioning Wittgenstein's theories or pondering psychoanalyst D.W. Winnicott's notion of feeling real. The Argonauts were the Greek heroes sent in search of the Golden Fleece. Perhaps in this story, the prize is Maggie and Harry's baby Iggy, their family with Harry's first son, their love, their tribe. The original heroes travelled in a ship called the Argo, to which the author credits Roland Barthes' idea of the phrase, I love you. Just as the Argo's parts may be replaced over time during the ship's journey, the boat is still called the Argo. Thus, whenever the lover utters, I love you, its meaning must be renewed with each use. 
This is a fascinating and completely accessible presentation of contemporary queer theory and motherhood, though mostly I found it to be an incredibly moving love story. That's what I thought. Brilliant. That's a really good summary. And like you say, it is very, very hard to summarise. Yeah, the reason I chose the book is because it just has all the ingredients, doesn't it? It's intense, honest, beautiful, clever, complex. And what really stood out for me is the radical vulnerability in the writing. I just found it super powerful. And when I was rereading the book and preparing for art fictions, I ended up writing more than 24 pages of notes. I could have just copied out the whole book. <laughs> I'd say, like, like you say, I'd agree it's a love story. But I would say it was a love story on three levels with Maggie's partner, Harry, with her baby son, Iggy, and also with, as Maggie Nelson describes, the many gendered mothers of a heart. So that's how she refers to them, these poets and philosophers and writers that she's referencing constantly throughout the book. And I was days away from having my baby girl, Eve, when I first read the book. And I just really identified with her descriptions of pregnancy. It was almost like she was perfectly articulating so many aspects of my experience. And I don't know if you felt this, but I really felt a kind of kinship with her when I was reading it. And it's also a bit like being inside of her mind because of the way that it's structured like sort of non-linear and self-reflective. It just sort of feels like what it is to live in a mind. Well, my very nice experience was listening to the book. Maggie Nelson is actually the reader on the audiobook. And there's this real intimacy because it's literally her. But I thought even if it wasn't her reading it, it would still have that effect because it's in the text. It's not so much in the yeah. voice. I listened to it on audiobook when I was preparing, which was interesting in contrast to reading it. It was really nice to have her read it, actually, but it was just as intimate reading it as a book rather than listening to her voice. I think the difference in listening to it is that you, you're not seeing the sources identified in the margins of the book. So she takes that form from Roland Barthes' A Lover's Discourse. And she, I've read um, in reviews that she said that it's a, an homage to Bart. Um, but that's, it's also interesting because it feels like she's kind of fleshing out her family tree of writers. It's part of that love story. Yeah, but she's doing it without being pretentious. That's what's so nice because all that name dropping could come across the wrong way, but it's folded into all the text. It's folded into all the personal things. You know, she might be talking about Winnicott and then she's talking about something to do with her son's hair or something. You know, it's not academic or anything like that. Yeah, it feels like she's just bringing critical theory and art, actually, because she makes lots of references to art throughout the book to bear on her life. Yeah, like you say, it doesn't feel pretentious in the slightest. It's more about a life lived and she's using these sources in order to understand and, and bear witness to that. Were there any particular parts of the book that stood out? Well, like I said, I could have copied out the whole book, so like the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, maybe to pick out just a few things that stood out. I think the first section when she's straight in with 
the like diaristic description of the passionate sex between her and Harry at the start of her relationship is pretty bold as a way to start and it wouldn't always work but because it's in the hands of Maggie Nelson it's totally great yeah I really enjoyed the descriptions of their relationship early on and I don't necessarily think of myself as a romantic but maybe I am like the feverish debates they're having around ideas reminded me of when you're in the early throes of love and you're really open to the other person and you're both really malleable. Yeah, I'm kind of in love with the whole of their relationship. <laughs> At some point she describes how she's found her perfect partner because their perversities are perfectly matched, yeah. which I just love. And I think that is such a brilliant description of what a good love life is. <laughs> And then definitely the way she describes pregnancy is, as being so wondrous. And then, you know, in connection to that, the strength of her feelings for her baby as well. Like her description of the wildness of pregnancy is really striking. And I made a note of it the first time I read it. I've actually written it down here if you want me to just read out a short quote. Have you got that as well? Yeah, I picked up on that. You say it. Yeah, so she questions, is there something inherently queer about pregnancy itself, insofar that it profoundly alters one's normal state and occasions a radical intimacy with and alienation from one's own body? And this just felt like such an accurate description of my experience. I mean, you've had children, so you'll be able to comment as well. But I don't know if I've ever felt so fully inside and outside my own body as when I was pregnant. Like the sickness that you get early on, the weight that you feel as you're getting bigger, the baby's hiccups, because Eve constantly had hiccups. <laughs> and then like the first little fluttery movements that you're feeling, and then later the crazy, like mad kicking that the baby's doing. Like watching your own belly perform is totally like science fiction and hard to get your head around. Yeah, so that description of pregnancy is wild and one in which is so common. But then I think somewhere early on in the book, she questions and then sort of answers through the writing of the Argonauts whether an experience so common can become uniquely interesting. And that's something that I've thought about quite a lot, actually, is how interesting is it to talk about pregnancy and and having children when it's such a common thing. <laughs> so it's yeah, quite nice to read a book and find that this experience that is so significant be described in just such a fantastic way. Yeah, well, when she's talking about the inherently queer about pregnancy, she does ask how can an experience so profoundly strange and wild and transformative also symbolise or enact the ultimate conformity? Or is this just another disqualification of anything too closely tied to the female animal? So just going on from what you were saying about the wildness, she was also asking that question herself, wasn't she? At one point, she does bring up a conversation between Jane Gallup, who's an artist, and the critic Rosalind Krauss. And she says that Rosalind Krauss comes across as if Jane's maternity had rotted her mind as though she should be ashamed for trotting out naked pictures of herself and her son in the bathtub, obviously she's a photographer, contaminating serious academic space with her pudgy body and unresolved, self-involved thinking. And she says that 
part of the problem is this commonplace, you know, so common to be pregnant and have a baby. How can it possibly be academic? <laughs> How can it be academic? But also she felt that she was shaming Jane Gallup. And I wonder if there's something of the art critic Rosalind Krauss where she is siding with that patriarchal structure of what is right, what has value, what has merit, because Krauss was a very, very important art critic at a time where women weren't art critics. So perhaps to be an art critic, she had to buy a ticket to the male structure, which is so disappointing and hopefully doesn't happen now. Yeah, it's sad, though, that if, if that's the case, that she felt she needed to occupy her own space in that way. I think it's quite different for an artist. I do remember when I was pregnant, I left a 12-hour day, everyday career. And I remember feeling identityless. And in this society, in this country, when you're a pregnant woman, you're, you're kind yeah, of a nothing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because everybody's defined by what they do. Being pregnant isn't doing anything. No, although... Yeah, it's interesting the way that you are looked at and treated by others. There's a very marked difference. Like you're no longer sexually attractive in the same way. You've become kind of asexual, or that's how I felt when I was pregnant, which is quite nice in a way. I didn't mind it, I have yeah, to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there's funny things like I really enjoyed being offered seats on the tube because that was pre-COVID when the tubes are really mental and you can never get a seat. People sort of respect the pregnant woman in some ways, but it's not really to do with you. It's more to do with the unborn child. And I think Maggie Nelson talks about that in the book. It's like you're sort of carrying the future. So you have this special status, but it's no longer about you as an individual. It's about the baby that you're carrying and the idea of what you're carrying inside mm. you. Just to go back a, a minute to what else stood out, I just I have to say this. I really loved how Maggie Nelson talks about the awe she feels at Iggy's body and rereading it. Because the first time I read it, I was pregnant. Second time rereading it, I'd had my baby. And yeah, she talks about how you can never prepare yourself for your baby's body, you know, no matter how many scans you look at. And I welled up rereading that. And just thinking about when Eve was born, when she was delivered and placed next to me, feeling the softness of her skin and like this warm creature is probably the most profound thing that I've ever experienced. And I still absolutely love getting her naked and <laughs> getting her ready for a bath. And it's still really difficult to comprehend that this body can come out of my body. <laughs> Yeah, well, Maggie Nelson is astounded that her body can create a male body, yeah. you know, the opposite gender. I do have one of each flavour, so I've done both. And I found it equally amazing. But it is funny, though, that kind of recognition of the sex, because we didn't know that Eve was a girl until she'd been delivered. And yeah, all the expectations around gender if you know I didn't want any of that and neither did Tom and actually having her I've realized just how obsessed with sex and gender people are because it's the first question mm. people ask you know in the street it's like is is it a girl or a boy it's like why do people care what you know why do you need to know what kind of genitals my baby has she's just a baby like 
what are you going to do with that information? Yeah. <laughs> or when people say, which they often did about my son, oh, what a beautiful little girl. Well, we get the opposite. <laughs> oh, do you? Well, I didn't have to say, but you knew there was going to be further conversation. So I'd clarify and say, actually, it's a boy. And then yeah. people would say, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. sorry. And you just realise when they're a baby, like it really doesn't matter. They're just a baby. It's just that classic question, but it's interesting in the context of the Argonauts, which is so much about gender, is how, as a structure, it is so firmly entrenched. And I, yeah, never really realised just how deeply entrenched it was until I'd had Eve. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that so much of it is from the outside in and then you have a baby and it's almost like from the inside out. For their survival, you sort of have to see things through their eyes, like understand what sort of a cry is this? Are you in pain? Are you hungry? Are you tired? And so everything else becomes through their eyes as well. I mean, the whole book, really, as you say, is about gender and it's also about transformation and I think inherently in that is a transformation for me, for us, for the reader of ways to think about gender. She is going through a transformation of her body and Harry's going through his own transformation where he is taking testosterone. So, of course, there's this idea of the Argo, the boat, that over time is being slowly, slowly, slowly changed, but is still the Argo. And she does highlight this problem with our cultural reference to same-gender relationships and same-sex marriage. She says, I don't know many, if any, queers who think of their desire's main feature as being same-sex. But whatever sameness I've noted in my relationships with women is not the sameness of woman and certainly not the sameness of parts. Rather, it is the shared, crushing understanding of what it means to live in a patriarchy. And I thought that was brilliant. And that really comes through in a lot of the rest of her writing. I mean, there's one point in which Harry says that males always acknowledge each other. And you can't really think it's sweet because it's saying, I'm not going to try and kill you or whatever it says. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you and I understand what it means to live in a patriarchy. I, I think you also have that with, you know, with female friends, don't you? But it is interesting, that description. I think it's very easy to look at lesbian relationships and think you know what they're about. But I did like her friend who talked about gender as colour. And even if you don't know what that colour is, it still has a colour. It doesn't matter. It's not colourless. Yeah. One of the most striking things for me was the end of the book and how she has intertwined life and death. The death is Harry's mother and the life is, of course, the birth of her son, Iggy. And it was one of those things where you're kind of on the edge of your seat reading it and thinking, this is just so amazing. This is so incredible. This baby is being born and oh my gosh this woman is dying this is terrible it was just so perfectly written and I did think that was very connected to the way artists will often create a series of work and then another series of work and sort of exhaust one series or rather have nothing left to say about that series even though that might be picked up at a later time and I was thinking about your work 
in the context of the end of this book and how it's formulated and how the end of one thing or the death sprouts something new. In fact, quite literally in some of your work, I think there's a saying that each ending is a little death and each farewell is a little death. It's almost like you take a cutting from one series. So you let that series metaphorically die off and then use that cutting as a source of new growth for the next series. That happens quite literally with the love heart in Lead Me Not Into Temptation. So can you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah, so I had an exhibition at Block 336, which is an artist-run project space and studio provider in Brixton, which I'm the founding director of. So when we set up Block, we each decided that we would have a solo show at some point and we founded the space in 2011 and I finally got round to having a solo show of my own in 2017. I won't go too much into detail about that exhibition, but I was using the Garden of Eden as a metaphor to think about various things. I was thinking about sex and the erotic body and food, consumption, desire. And at the heart of the installation that I made in the main gallery space, I built a gigantic love heart. So an eight foot by eight foot love heart that's based on the Swizzle Suite. So following that exhibition, I was researching into the history of the love heart symbol. I really liked your description, by the way, of taking a cutting, because that is very much how it seems to work. Yeah, I wanted to know where that love heart symbol came from. Everybody globally understands that symbol, but I didn't know anything about its history. So I found this very tenuous theory, but I quite like our historical fake news. Yeah, so the tenuous theory is that it might connect to the seed of the Silphium plant, which went extinct in 700 BC, which is supposedly heart-shaped. So this plant was said to have aphrodisiac and contraceptive properties. So I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I have to do something. So I decided to put it in a painting. So I was making a series of work uh, titled, If You Were the Last Man on Earth, because I was thinking about Adam and Eve and Adam as being the first man, but if there's only one man, he may as well be the last man as well. So kind of thinking about the complexity of relationships. I was actually having a conversation with someone about that series the other day, and they said that they felt a little bit like Adam and Eve in lockdown, (laughs) which I quite liked. So yeah, the Sylphian plan, or my interpretation, my invention around this Sylphian plant went into a painting called going steady. So that painting features a drawing of a couple. The female partner is in a handstand position and the male partner's holding her feet and the sylphium plant is alongside them, sort of positioned on this kind of stage-like setting, which is where many of the witch's garden plant paintings are also situated. The personal context to that painting is that I was trying to conceive at the time. So one of the things I think that was feeding in was the old wives tale about how you should stand on your head after you've had sex to try and help with conception. I just want to ask about your description of that painting because you said there's a drawing of a man and a woman. Yeah. But of course it's a painting. I mean, it looks like a finger painting through the paint. Yeah, well, I do think of it as sort of drawing painting. And I remember when I was on my undergraduate, 
the point at which I recognised that I could draw in painting. And it was like a really mm. significant moment for me. So in terms of the technical process in that painting, it does feel like drawing because I put the ground down, a thick oil ground, and then I use a rubber brush to sort of carve into the surface. And yeah, it's a drawing that has to be quickly made because the oil paint is drying. And drawing is really fundamental to my practice. Can we go back then to the sylphium that appears in that painting? What happened to it next? I was invited to make a work for Ambit magazine and Olivia was really keen on the moving image work that I'd made for Lead Me Not Into Temptation which featured a revolving apple with a love heart shaped bite taken out of it. This is Olivia Bax? Olivia Bax, yeah. So with the love bite piece I worked with a computer games designer to make that work and I had been thinking about yeah the possibility of making something else so when Ambit invited me to make something for the launch of their magazine and to be featured in the magazine I worked to make an animation of the sylphium plant so in the animation the plant rises and falls and I was sort of hoping that there would be a clear reference to the male anatomy shall we say. Well, I was coincidentally at that launch. <laughs> the words erect and droop <laughs> came immediately to me. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't lost on you. <laughs> no, but I also loved it because it's like a serious plant study and then it has this funny thing that it does. Yeah, well, when you say serious plant study, it is extinct and it went extinct so long ago, you know, obviously pre-photography. There are only really examples of it on coins and there are descriptions of it in Roman poetry. So I was trying to piece together, you know, what this plant might have looked like. Some sources say that it's connected to the wild fennel or carrot family. So my sylphium was based on that. Okay, and then the sylphium made its way from the launch at Tate Modern to the Witch's Garden series. Is that the next part of the lineage? Yeah. So Christian Day invited me to be part of the exhibition Paper Cuts at Saatchi. So I decided for that I would make two paintings of the Sylphium plants. Yeah, Apollo's gift paintings. And then I just made three and four and now I've got nearly 40. So I only planned to make two and then they just kept growing and growing. What really struck me about the paintings in the If You Were the Last Man on Earth series and then the Witch's Garden is that really strange platform or holding pattern that they've got or shadow or light or whatever it is. It doesn't feel very solid at all. And when you move on to the Witch's Garden series, they have that same sense of what I would call a thinness just going back to the book for a moment, Maggie Nelson talks about Winnicott referring to an inadequate holding environment, meaning that if the mother is not able to create an environment that holds the baby safely or contains the baby rather, and talks about the effect on the soul, she says the question of what a psyche or a soul can experience depends in a large part on what you believe it's made of. And then she quotes Ralph Waldo Emerson, 
Spirit is matter reduced to an extreme thinness, oh so thin. And I connected that straight away to your paintings in The Witch's Garden particularly, because they do feel like this thinness of space, thin figures, virtual space, in the same way that if you looked at an image on a screen, it would have a thinness to it. You know, we don't expect that there's any bulk in those images that we're looking at, even when we're looking at one another now on Zoom. So can you talk a little bit about that platform and that thin space So I can't say exactly what it is, but I definitely think of the space that they're in as being a psychological one. And I guess they're on this sort of stage. It's been described as like an island-like space as a way of me just holding them in position for me to contemplate without anything else around them. So I know we, we talked in the studio a little bit about the environment that I grew up in and I actually hadn't thought about it that much until recently it's only I did a talk for the students at City and Guilds of London Art School where I also teach so I was talking a little bit about my mum's house so my mum is I don't know whether to say is or was the compulsive hoarder so the house that I grew up in was very very full of objects it was very cluttered and Yeah, my paintings are very free of clutter. There tends to be one object in a space and it's not in relation to other things. Things aren't stacked. They're not struggling for space. So I don't know whether this semi-conscious decluttering is in relation to that. Does that have anything to do with the thinness of space? I think it must do because you said it, because you made the connection between one thing and another thing. In the witch's garden, the plants don't very obviously have any kind of root system. They're positioned as if they're taken out of one environment and put into another environment, which is your painting. Yeah, they feel more like objects than plants in the witch's garden. You know, they feel positioned on this stage-like space. It doesn't feel like they're very anchored. They could topple over, couldn't they? I think it'd be nice to talk about some of them quite specifically. And I looked at a number of them and chose some that really stood out for me. And going back and forth as you do researching, I just continually change my mind. So I thought that was completely unreliable. (laughs) Well, that's good to hear. (laughs) So we did talk before about endings and new beginnings. So perhaps it might work to start with an ending. And that is the painting titled Stinger, which is a stinging nettle. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that painting came about after somebody I knew committed suicide. And I'd been thinking about stinging nettles as possible plants to paint anyway. And when this person committed suicide, as many people do, I was sort of looking for clues, trying to figure out why it happened, you know, questioning myself, like, could I have done more? And everybody around that person was doing the same thing. Like often is the case, you sort of obsess and and try and find information through tiny details. So I was looking on this person's Instagram account and I came across this image of a wilted stinging nettle. I just found it so devastating, this image. And it seemed to sort of 
yeah, almost too perfectly capture what had happened. The stinging nettle has its own defense system. You know, it has all of these tiny hairs that are like little tiny needles that sting you when you come too close to it. And this stinging nettle that had wilted, it just kind of, yeah, spoke to me directly about what had happened to this person so their defense system was no longer working and yeah and then they went on to take their own life so I was thinking about how I could work with the image and it was too difficult I couldn't work with that image so I felt rather than work with that I would paint a stinging nettle that had its defense system intact yeah it was quite difficult because I painted that one directly from a photograph that I took which is quite unusual for me to work directly from one image and yeah I realized that you never see nettles on their own they're always growing in a sort of bush like there's power in numbers and as a stinging nettle you are going to be more defended if you're amongst other stinging nettles that also have that defense system it felt important to have it isolated and it was a really difficult one to paint, but I really wrestled with it, which also felt appropriate. Stinging nettles sting and you can't get close to them. And it was a little bit like that in the painting, like it kept sort of stinging me and throwing me off. And, you know, I was trying to get close to it and trying to get close to, yeah, wrestling with that as an image, as, as a painting. And it was almost like I needed special gloves or something. I don't know. Gosh, that's incredible. It's also quite relevant to now and the isolation that a lot of people are going through. I recently was talking to a psychoanalyst who said he's so inundated with referrals because so many people are absolutely miserable. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. One of the other paintings I was hoping to talk about, because it does remind me of the droopy sylphium somewhat, is Milk of Paradise. So Milk of Paradise, like Floating Without Outlines, actually was made for a painting at Peter von Kant. And the title of the show was Zombies. And I was making the Witch's Garden series at the time. The first thing that came to mind in relation to zombies was this kind of schlocky... Um, horror type image that obviously wasn't relevant for me so I was trying to think about how I could work with the theme in a way that was meaningful and the opioid crisis in the states was really really in the news at the time so I did some research into opium and it's super interesting the history so it's been used for thousands of years as far back as 5000 BC it was used in the 12th century in childbirth. Uh, soporific, do you say? Soporific sponge. Women were, were given overdoses, which is not surprising when you're screaming in pain uh, during childbirth. Apparently it was applied directly to the vagina to ease sexual frustration. Really? Which is <laughs> interesting, yeah. Kids were obviously given it as laudanum in the UK. So it has this really like rich layered history. But yeah, so like I said, the opioid crisis in the States was really in the news. And I'd watched a BBC documentary of these people on fentanyl and Oxycontin. And I was so struck by how, how they looked. They looked like zombies. It was so, so devastating. So I decided to yeah, make those paintings. And also, like, I have a history of like, drug use and drug abuse in my own family. So it felt pertinent on a number of levels for me to like, work with that subject matter. 
so yeah that's so that painting is sort of yeah so the flower hasn't opened yet so the bud is sort of waiting to open there's a kind of sadness to that plant it does feel that it could be something perhaps taking a bow in a very sort of modest humbling way yeah there's a stillness to it which felt important as well someone said that it looked like it had a mouth but that is death of the author, isn't it? It's like you can't control what people see. You can't control what people bring to the work. Well, a lot of the time people open things up and say things that you didn't even realise you were doing. And then there it is in the painting. So speaking of conception, tell me about False Unicorn, because that's got an amusing use for it. Why is that in the witch's garden? <laughs> Yeah, so False Unicorn was one of the first paintings that I made in the series. So yeah, I was researching into the history of midwifery and I sort of became interested in women who had this special knowledge of plants and the female body. And yeah, the personal context is that I was also trying to conceive at the time. And I'd been speaking to a friend who I used to live with who studied herbal medicine. And we were talking about herbs that support fertility. I didn't take any of the herbs. It was more kind of research for the work. So she started reeling off these herbs that could, could be used. And she mentioned false unicorn. And firstly, I couldn't believe that that was the name of the plant. So I sort of fell in love with the name of it. And false unicorn is said to help with impotence. So, yeah, I decided to invent my own version of false unicorn. And I had a number of, well, but one main funny conversation with a male collector who was very drawn to that painting. The phallic quality is undeniable. It's brilliant. <laughs> Well, it's quite nice, you know, like I'm interested in magical thinking anyway. So, you know, if you've got a false unicorn in the room, it's going to last you a lifetime. A false unicorn must have worked because then there was conception and uh, you moved on to the plant series called Mother Nature. So can you tell me about what distinguishes the two series from one another? I was starting to think like towards the end of my pregnancy about mothering, you know, what it meant for me to become a mother, reflecting on my own experience of being mothered. And I guess the research I was doing was partially being led by that. The works then shifted into featuring more than one plant. That's something quite significant because in the witch's garden, it was always one singular plant. They're very personal works, so something like Standing By features these two orchid-like blooms, which I was really drawn to because of the sort of white part of the bloom, which just looked to me like this perfectly white sheet. I was just going to say, so it's a pair of orchids, or as my grandmother used to say, orchids, because they used to come up all through her vegetable garden. But they are very intensely coloured yellow with black speckles on them. And then they have these little white rectangles. Therefore, they really stand out amongst the other colours, yeah? Yeah, and, you know, at the, at the point where I started painting that work, I was running around getting ready for my baby. So I was, like, really, like, preparing. I don't know, what do they call it when you go into um, nesting mode? madness yeah <laughs> so 
So I was reading them as like clean white sheets and they are like these funny alien like little plants. I wanted to paint two of them side by side. Yeah, I wanted them to stand as these kind of expectant parents. And then you have in your studio that not quite made it to the website at this point, a number of small paintings which are earthed. The platform has gone and then these plants are nestled amongst the rocks and the rocks are quite sparkly, like a beautiful, magical place. And the plants feel a lot more held. So that's quite a shift again within that series. And I do think it is interesting to talk about the personal context and of course, the works are hopefully more than that as well. But yeah, they were made after Eve had been born. And I was thinking about plants in relation to bodies and how, you know, they grow these impossible offshoots and they split and they grow and they reproduce in a way that chimes somehow with the birth of Eve. Yeah, the impossibility of a body coming out of a body like in relation to the way that succulents split. So yeah, in the, in the new works, you have that kind of thing happening. But I wanted to have them sort of thrusting through a ground rather than just sort of positioned on top, like you mentioned in the Witch's Garden series. So yeah, that's a definite shift. They're much more grounded now. For now, there's three of them. And I read them as a segue to your new work. I'm really excited about the new ones. So I've made drawings for them and they've really shifted because those works, they're much more about, yeah, this focus on the body. They're even more complex. So I'm quite excited about having the next four on the way anyway. And it's interesting, sort of overall, I got a sense that during conception and the baby, there was a sort of a withdrawal, a contraction into a smaller space and smaller paintings. And what we could see now is maybe some larger paintings. I mean, maybe more small ones because, hey, come on, 40, you can keep going. There's nearly 40, yeah. There's definitely more small paintings coming because I'm working predominantly from my spare room at home. Oh, okay. It's just too difficult for me logistically to get to my studio in Brixton with a new baby. But yeah, I am making some larger works as well. And I was really desperate to make things a little bit more complex and set up dynamics between things. So I'm sort of looking back a little bit to previous works that I've made that reference objects that have been dug up or are from sort of yeah historical periods so I was looking a lot at objects again that related to fertility so female figurines and like venuses and that kind of thing yeah I'm really excited about where that's going because I made four when I was pregnant but I've got lots of drawings for the next paintings in that series and that's your process isn't it to be making lots of drawings and using those as a basis for paintings. Yeah. Yes, I'm always drawing. When you're preparing either the paintings or the drawings, are you using composites of different ideas of plants and the actual plants and realistic photographs and, and just making stuff up as well? Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, and some will have more or less of each one of those elements so how about we move on now from your work to understanding what other artists you might have looked at or are looking at or find inspiring? 
you mentioned Melanie Jackson and Esther Leslie, who recently created a book called Deeper in the Pyramid. And there were a number of events and exhibitions around that. Do you want to talk a bit about that piece? Yeah, I've been looking again at Deeper in the Pyramid because the subject of that work is milk. So it's very pertinent for me at the moment. Yeah, it's super expansive and ambitious deeper in the pyramid as a project so like you say it's it manifests in different ways as exhibition which yeah includes video installation performance a published book writing sculpture drawing animation they're exploring milk as this primary substance but it moves from looking at milk as something that is intimate through mythology, lactation porn, technology, economics. I'm interested in it because of how broad ranging it is and the way she's exploring or they are exploring the connections and crossovers between things. It's kind of how I want to approach everything but obviously we don't have time to, it's like a mega mega project. They're also very interesting, I thought, about that project, how they're going from the intimacy of, you know, mother's milk to they talk about it being as technologized as oil, for instance. Yeah, and you can watch the video, I think it's on Vimeo, you can find it, so if you Google deeper in the pyramid, and also you can download the PDF of the book, I mean, even better buy the book, because it's very inexpensive, I think it's only about £10 in postage. But if you can't afford the book, then you can download the PDF from Grand Union, where they showed the work in 2018. But I've been out and about quite a bit, so seeing exhibitions, it's really nice to see the CCA shows. So to see Emma Cousins' most recent work, Lindsay Mendick's work, the Dana Schutz painting show at Thomas Dane, I thought was really, really incredible. It was like the best painting show I've seen in a long time. Very heavy. Yeah, heavy. She's like channeling the big boys. <laughs> Isn't she? Yeah. Good on her. Yeah, she's really taking it on and turning it into her own thing. And those sculptures are amazing. Yeah, so good, aren't they? I felt that they were real painters' sculptures yeah. because they very much have fronts. Yeah. But yeah. they don't really have active backs. That's very true. Yeah, you want to stick your fingers in them. Oh, yeah. Like you can see that she's enjoyed <laughs> poking that clay. Absolutely. It's like super visceral and very, very tactile. Yeah. And also, she really knows paint. I often do this standing at an angle to the painting so I can see how the paint is applied. And you can normally see anyway from looking at it, but it's a real mark of a painter to see a surface that is cohesive and coherent without, you know, the colour or the image or anything, just with the way the paint's been put on the canvas. Yeah, they're super dynamic and yeah, such a feast. Like as a painter, like almost more excited by the surfaces. Like that's what hit me first before like the weight of the work because they are heavy. Like you say, Goya's there and Beckman is there and and just like the angst-ridden works. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. What else am I looking at? Stanley Spencer and Edward Burrow are always kind of around for me. What is it about their work? I think it's something to do with the libidinal drive that's in that work. 
Stanley Spencer especially, like there's a kind of madness in, in the work. Like they're very, very obsessive. He was a bit of a nutty character. And Edward Burrow is someone who was very reserved. There's so much in the work. He would actually never really talk about his work. And there's a brilliant interview with him on Vimeo, which is not really an interview because he just is, yeah, so difficult. <laughs> there's something I really love about that because like, there's so much pressure on artists to talk about their work and, you know, to be an expert on their own work. You know, he comments, he's like, you know, why do you need me to talk about it? It's, it's like, it's all in the pictures. Yeah, so there's kind of something about his stubbornness, which I really love. But also just the work, like, you know, he's looking at the underbelly of society and, and I'm often drawn to that. These characters and like you have in George Gross and, and those kinds of painters. Although what stands out about your work and what stands out about each of the characters, the plants that you've featured in your work is something a lot more complex. You know, ambivalence, ambiguity, transformation. They are presented very simply, but actually they don't give the game away. They don't tell the story. You have to find the stories within them. And I'm glad that... In contrast, you have not been a stubborn person to interview (laughs) and you've been very good talking about your work. And I would like to, at this point, thank you very much, Jane Hayes-Greenwood, for being my guest today. Well, thank you so much and thank you for your reflections, which are, yeah, really insightful. Yeah, thank you. really enjoyed it. Thank you to this week's guest and to all the artists who continue to inspire this podcast. And thank you for listening to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Knight. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, please review, and of course you're welcome to get in touch with me directly if you'd like more information via my Instagram, artfictions2020, or my website, gillianknight.co.uk. Across these you'll find images of the artist's work, as well as any relevant links we mentioned today. Many thanks to Griffin Knight for his original music composition and performance. Happy reading and art viewing till next time. Oh, I can hear a crying baby in the background there. <laughs> Will she sleep through the night now? Not really. Maybe awake twice or so in the night. With COVID, she's been awake a little bit more because she tested positive as well. She has COVID as well. How truly frightening. Yeah, it wasn't great getting that result for her. <laughs>